welcome to the Age of Plastic podcast with me, Andrea Fox. This is an environmental podcast about trying to live a less plastic-filled, less wasteful life, about how to eat, shop and do things differently and more sustainably. I named it the Age of Plastic podcast because I think that's what we're living in, the age of plastic. It's in our oceans, it's in our soil and our bodies. And for me, it's a shorthand for some of our big environmental issues, from overconsumption to overuse of fossil fuels to the harming of our air, soil and water quality. It's a gateway issue and it links into so many other aspects of our lives. So we don't just look at eco-issues of plastic waste. This podcast is full of expert guests who talk about everything from ditching fast fashion to food waste and plastic-free beauty to recycling bins. And we share a simple eco-life hack at the end of every single episode. So if you're intrigued about doing your bit for the planet, I made this podcast for you. This is also my journey too, so I hope you enjoy. Tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Welcome along to this episode of The Age of Plastic. I hope you enjoy the new intro. As you might have noticed, I just keep switching things up. I'm going to stick with that one for a little while. I hope you like it. Um, Thank you to all our new listeners. Lots of you got in touch over Christmas to say you were binging on the episodes. So thanks so much for that. Especially to Ningaloo Bulk Foods listening in Australia, who obviously were hit by the wildfires. And Shall We Just Not, who both found our Instagram at Age of Plastic Podcast and reached out to say they were enjoying it. Thank you, guys. Uh, If you'd like to get in touch as well, follow us on Instagram, Age of Plastic Podcast, and get in touch. But if you aren't down with social media, I totally get it. You can email me via my website, iamandreafox.co.uk, with any comments, guest suggestions, or eco life hacks that you'd like to share with me. I've got an eco life hack to share after today's guest. Now, I recorded this wonderful guest before the UK election here in December, where, if you weren't aware, a party with very little concern or any manifesto pledge for the environment actually won. Sad face emoji. So Christmas 2019, pretty gloomy for me. On top of that, floods in Mozambique and other areas of the world, of course, the Australian wildfires. Don't worry, I am getting to some optimism on today's episode. Stick with me. Author and founder of Transition Town Totness, Rob Hopkins is my guest today. And as well as discussing the brilliant idea that is Transition Towns and the Transition Network, where communities take action and reimagine and rebuild together, his new book is called From What Is to What If? Unleashing the Power of Imagination to Create the Future We Want. His new book is basically asking questions like, what if? What if our schools fostered kids' imaginations more? What if technology wasn't distracting our precious attention? What if the role of government were different from what it is? It's a brilliant defence of daydreams and ways to be creative and how our minds might imagine a way out of the climate crisis. We recorded this chat at Pebble Festive in Flatiron Square in London last month. And just so you know, it was really, really quiet. So I've added all of those noisy sound effects just for fun. Here's my chat with Rob Hopkins. Let's start with transition towns how did you create them and what are they if you were trying to explain them in a sentence to someone Uh, if i was trying to explain it in a sentence i would say it's a movement of communities who are reimagining and rebuilding the world you know for me it's 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 a movement we started in 2005 2006 down in devon in yeah there was the first one and then it spread so you'll now find them in 50 countries around the world in thousands of places and it's really about what can we do now 
with what we have around us in terms of climate change. So we could wait for the government to do stuff. Finally, that's stirring very, very slowly. But what can we do without waiting for permission, without waiting for some big sort of funding investment, without waiting for policy change? What can we do with the people we have where we are now with some imagination? So it is a movement which is very... Somebody once called it hope with its sleeves rolled up. It's about, it's about what can we do in a place where we are. So it's people starting local food projects, people starting community energy schemes, people starting whatever, based around the idea of how do we make the economy of this place more resilient, more local, more interesting, more diverse, with better parties, better food, better beer, better, uh, more beautiful trees. You know, it's really... It's very solutions-focused and positive and saying, what do we do now? And it can literally be anything. When you talk about some of the uh, ideas that people have come up with, um, one of the ones you've just talked about now was uh, the HSBC one. Can you tell that story again? Yeah, I mean, that's strictly speaking not a transition project, but it's a story that I use in the book that I just yes, yeah. published called From What Is to What If. So it's, a, it's the story of a, a couple called Hilary and Dan. She's an amazing printmaker. He's a filmmaker making... And they wanted to... They live in Walthamstow in London. They were very moved by seeing the debt crisis unfolding around them, the austerity crisis, and they wanted to do something. So they could have, you know, started a blog or started a petition or something. Or a podcast. Or a podcast. But actually what they decided to do was to take over an empty bank, the last bank on their high street that closed, and they opened it as what they called an act of citizen money creation, where they started printing these bank notes. They're not really like a local currency. They're more like kind of collectible art pieces they're all individually signed on the back by Hillary as the manager of the bank and uh, and, it, and and so the idea was that then the, the building was opened as a sort of community educational space around learning about economics which was really popular and then all these notes so needed and these notes were sort of strung up on washing lines like washing when they were drying and uh, but the, and then each on the four notes they featured a different person so one of them featured they were the people who were catching the people who are falling because of austerity in that place. So there was the prime, the, the teacher of the local primary school lost all their funding for arts. A family who, uh, who feed 200 people two meals a day for people who can't eat, feed themselves. A guy who mortgages his house to start a food bank, and two the two Steves who run a project keeping young men out of gangs. I mean, they're the they're the it's heroes. Just, you know? Absolute heroes. Totally. Absolute heroes. And so the idea was they wanted to sell 50,000 pounds worth of these notes. Half of the money they would give to uh, split between those four charities. The really smart bit was the other half, they, they then took to the secondary debt market, which is where people buy and sell each other's debt. So if you had a debt for £100, you couldn't pay it, then that company might then sell it on to another company for like two quid. But then you still owe that first company £100. So they went to the secondary debt market and they bought £1.2 million worth of Walthamstow payday lending debt. And then they cancelled that debt. I just think that's such an amazing story. Isn't it totally brilliant? I've never even thought to think about that, but obviously it makes such a big difference to their community. Imagine, payday lending debt is the worst, most sort of leech-like debt that feeds off people who who have no other option at all. It's horrible. So what they wrote to everybody, they said... That debt you had, we've cleared. Good luck to you. We don't expect anything in return. Have a good life. Oh, and by the way, if you'd like to, this this letter is an invitation to an event on the 9th of May on this waste ground overlooking Canary Wharf. So when people turned up at 9 o'clock in the morning, there was a gold, a transit van they'd painted gold and filled with little little bits of paper with debt written on it. And then as part, I guess, of the kind of uh, explosive denouement of the film, they then blew the van up. They called it the detonation. And they blew this van up. And then afterwards, they then collected painstakingly every single piece 
of the uh, little bits of metal and bits of bit, little bits of glass. And people who'd bought with the bonds they issued beforehand got sent these little limited edition sort of art pieces with that in. And then they all the metal they melted down and went to a foundry, and then they minted these special commemorative coins out of bits of the van. I always say to people, you know, they were really concerned about debt in their community so they could have just done something start a petition or whatever actually what they did was they created something people will remember for years their notes are in the vna uh, their notes are are you know bought by collectors all around the world they've helped these charities they've done something which just makes people think about debt in a completely different way it's a beautiful for me example of when activism meets meets art and imagination yeah and as you've been saying that it reminds me of klf who, yeah. Oh, if only they'd thought to do this instead of just blow up a million yeah, pounds. Yeah, I always thought that was such a shit thing so to do. stupid. It's like, do you know what I could have done with that? What we could have done in this movement with that? I know it's a kind of an art thing, but it's a bit wanky, but really. But yeah, it, it was compared to what this this group in Walthamstow yeah. did. And that is in the book, which we're going to get into in a second, but just going back to Transition Networks, because I realise I've skipped ahead. <laughs> um, you have so many resources for people if they think, oh, it's, it sounds quite lofty, all of the all of what you've described Transition Network does, but you have some real resources that people can develop that they can use themselves. Because I often kind of think about, uh, it's George Monbiot. Uh, he talks about, forget about plastic straws. It's got to be kind of bigger ideas, but you don't necessarily have to wait for councils and governments to do things. You can set up a transition network where you are or find one where you are and find some resources to do something now. That's kind of the whole ethos behind what you're doing, right? Yeah, it's it's that um, we've hopefully made it really straightforward for people who want to do this. So so there is a guide that people will find. If people go to transitionnetwork.org, there is a thing called the Essential Guide to Doing Transition, which kind of distills down, I guess, 11 or 12 years of learning from watching these groups and them sharing their stories about what worked, what didn't work, all the trainings that we've done, all the conversations we've had, all the conferences. We sort of boil that down into this sort of seven things to bear in mind when you start a group. And then yeah, they'll like also the principles, find aren't the they? The principles, yeah, like the tools that you need. There's a guide as well called 21 Stories of Transition, which we did about two and a half years ago, which is stories from all over the world of what this actually looks like in practice, which range from people making their own local currencies to creating their own community energy companies to starting amazing local food projects to uh, uh, a project on on the on Black Isle in Scotland where they reduced the amount of car travel on that on that peninsula equivalent to driving to the moon and back two and a half times oh. uh, just stuff like that but it's stuff that could only be done by the people in that place yeah because if you came down from government with a clipboard you couldn't do it because you couldn't read the place in that level of kind of granularity that the people who live there and who understand it can. You know, that actually, if we really want things to move fast, you have to trust people in the places where they are and give them the resources they need because they know how to do the rest. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like we're, we're talking ahead of the election and I kind of often think if only someone at the top could make those decisions. But you're right, like turning up with a clipboard, they don't necessarily have the right ideas, the right understanding of areas and what really needs to be done and I think a lot of people when you talk about climate change they do feel a disconnect like I can't do anything about it it's it's a huge problem what can I do but there is something you can do on your doorstep and this is where the transition network comes in absolutely I always think you know you mentioned about the election and government that actually the role of government should be the role of every layer should be to remove all the obstacles to the layer underneath it doing everything it can possibly do. So so actually the role of central government is to empower uh, 
county councils and city governments to do everything they possibly can and remove all the obstacles to that and resource them so they're able to do that. Their role then is to enable the, 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 the more local councils to have all the resources they need to do to be able to really engage communities to work really, really well. Their role then is to, is to, is to work with and really engage with those communities and to support and enable the ideas that come out of them. You know, we need to flip this sort of pyramid the other way up and say the role, that's the role of every layer is to unlock the imagination of the layer underneath. There's one of the ideas in the book that I love is the idea that we should create a National Imagination Act which enshrines the right to imagine where the idea is that every publicly funded organisation in the country is, is, is told that they need to produce a plan about how they're going to maximise the imagination, the kind of imaginative ability, capacity of the people who work with them and who they work for and interact with. And it would be just phenomenal. Imagine the NHS, if the role of the NHS was to create the best conditions possible for all the people who work within it to be as imaginative as they can and that all the people who come through the NHS... I mean, obviously, we don't, you know... So, you, you, you know, you go to have a, an operation, you end up with six legs or something, you know. <laughs> but actually, you know, it should be that, that the experience of going to hospital feels like it feels safe and accommodating and there's art and... You know, I think that would be such an amazing thing. And you, I want to talk about the book now because it's called From uh, From What Is to What If. You talk a lot about power of creativity, but what is it about that that makes you so confident that's what's going to save us? Well, it's not the only thing that's going to save us, but it is it is something that is really we are desperately lacking. I think at the moment, you know, like the we're living in a time where the chief executive of Shell the other day said um, we have no choice other than to extract oil and gas in the long term. It's like, well, if you don't have a choice, you know, you, if anyone has a choice, it's you. And of course you have a choice. What are you talking about, you fool? You know, you, you are, that's just ridiculous. So we, we have people who we are governed by and in positions of power whose imagination has just shriveled and died. And at the very time, you know, everything in the world was, was imagined first. And I mentioned in a talk just now, for the 50 years before we went to the moon, we told stories about going to the moon and what it would be like and how amazing it would be to go to the moon. Tintin went to the moon. Jules Verne went to the moon. All those like, stories and films about people going to the moon until it got to the point where we had created this kind of irresistible longing that we had to go to the moon. And then we went to the moon. You know, so for me, there's something about, about the power of creating longing and the imagination is so important to that. Accompanied by that, of course, we need courage and action and, uh, and you know, empowerment and etc. etc. resources. But if we lack the imagination bit, we're going nowhere. And what the, what the book looks at is, you know, I kept reading people I really admire, like Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben, saying, climate change is a failure of the imagination. And I thought, well, that's so interesting. Why would it be that we're experiencing a failure of the imagination in 2019? Surely we're amazing. You know, we can watch Netflix whenever we want to. And, uh, you know, we can, we've got bookshops full of amazing authors writing great books. I came to the conclusion that we are creating a kind of a perfect storm that shrinks the imagination. You know, we know that when people are traumatized or anxious or stressed or depressed, the part of their brain, the hippocampus where the imagination fires from, shrinks by up to 20%. And when that happens, we lose the ability to think about the future in hopeful and positive ways. We are filling our lives with screens which distract us destroy our attention span and which we reach to every time when, when previously 
we would have looked out the window and daydreamed and done a little drawing or thought about a poem or the first few bars of a song would have come into our brain and we'd have thought that's really good I'll write that Do you know that daydreaming creative space has been just taken over by scrolling to the bottom of things we no longer play our, our children grow up in a world where play has been purged from our streets hundred years ago in London these streets are full of kids playing and now they've just disappeared you know so there's the lack of play we spend less and less time in the natural world we live in a time when the natural world is is, is declining the diversity of, in my lifetime the, the we've lost 70 percent of the creatures we share this planet with it's just it's terrifying just and so when that happens even koalas i think now because the wildfires even they're koalas, basically extinct in australia it's absolutely heartbreaking so when we live in a world where that's happening rene dubot the microbiologist used to say if we lived on the moon our imagination would be as barren as the moon so when we live in a time where that diversity is shrinking, I think it really has a knock-on impact in terms of our imagination. It's why if you go to Costa Rica and you wander through these amazing forests full of and all this wildlife and monkeys and parrots, we like, part, something deep in us goes, yes, yes, and we, we kind of connect with it. You know, when we spend time in nature, what we have of it, that's where all the great poets drew their inspiration. You know, we, we need to, and we spend less and less time outdoors, more and more time indoors. You know, we are, and then we have governments imposing austerity, which is really a war on the imagination because you slash the funding for libraries, you put yeah, so many people into a deep. It. Yeah, yeah, cutting arts funding is, I thought of it as a war on class, but you're right. It's an assault, it's an assault on the collective imagination because it shuts down people's sense of what's possible and it puts people in a state of fight or flight uh, where they don't know where their next meal's coming from, there, there's insecurity, it's just awful. You know, which is why you know, the universal basic income would be would actually, I think we need to reframe as being an imagination strategy. It's a tool for how you rekindle the imagination. A four-day week is an imagination strategy. Uh, uh, you know, organizations designing into their meetings time and space to just dream and work together is an imagination strategy and we need to be th thinking of those things in that way I think yeah I think you're right when it comes to our fo mobile phones being a constant distraction you think of your best ideas when you're in the shower because you are not distracted by things and I think no. all jobs people will say oh my job's not creative all jobs are just problem solving and creativity is just problem solving yeah. and so I think we need to start thinking about it in that kind of way but do you have any kind of tips and tricks for us now in like modern life of finding a way to be imaginative and be creative yeah so i think so one of the things i did was i went to do an improv training a weekend i did stand up before it's, when you were saying so that brilliant. i was like oh it gave me such joy i miss it yeah. so much we'll do it do, do it again you know there's yeah. there's there's something about i i loved that just doing it like being with in a room full of other adults playing for two days yeah. and be giving each other permission just to be completely ridiculous it's so silly and there's no right answers because we carry so much shit in our heads from school about there's a right answer and i'm going to get it wrong and uh you know so the beautiful like when we started the improv course we had to do this recite this mantra that was i suck and i love to fail <laughs> and it's like you just get that out of the way we're all going to oh be God, quite crap at this a wall by my desk. yeah exactly <laughs> So I think there's there's you know stuff about learning improv. There's uh, there's you know the, for me the beauty of transition is is that you you get together with other people and you create what if spaces. And we have so few what if spaces in our lives today where we can sit with other people and dream and plot and scheme and what if what if what if we did this what if we did that, and then actually go and do them. You know if we just sit around pontificating all the time, there's really no use to it. I think there's little things like like having a day of the week where you just put your phone away in a drawer. I think there's, there's things in our relationship with our phones about putting them on black and white, turning off the notifications. I interviewed, there's a guy in the book who's a designer who turns his internet off 
uh, at about eight o'clock in the evening and doesn't turn it on again till lunchtime. And he says he gets his most creative work done in the mornings. Uh, we need to give ourselves the yeah, like like you said, the most. There's a guy, a mathematician, who has his three B mantra. So the best ideas come on his bicycle, in the bath, or when he's in bed. I uh, thought you were going to yeah. say on the bog. On I the really bog. Did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the fourth one. He leaves that one out in polite society. But you know, th- there's for me when I was writing the book, any time I got stuck or any time I was thinking. Okay, those ideas never came to me sitting in front of my laptop. I got on my bike, I went out for a right ride under the trees. The, the other thing I would say to people is look up. Just as you're going around, just look up. You know, we, we, we increasingly walk around looking down, looking into our phones. Mm. We're going to get and such actually, long necks, aren't we? And we get terrible. Like, like mm-hmm. osteopaths, whenever I, I've been to the osteopath, he always says 50% of his work now is generated by laptops and poor posture but uh, but there's the thing about when you walk around looking up at, particularly at trees trees the underside of trees is so beautiful you like was, to draw as well don't and you? i like to draw for, for me that's i went to art school when i was 18 19 and for me drawing is is the time that puts me into a kind of into a different zone of just really uh you know i can look back at drawings that i did 30 years ago and I'm looking at the drawing, I can remember what it smelt like and sounded like when I was drawing it. You know, it's, wow. it's so more than way more than photos, because because when you draw, you're in a complete attention space and you're observing and you're looking and your attention is completely in the room. All art is really is distilled attention. So when we look at a picture on the wall or a piece of art, we are we are kind of immersing ourselves in that in that person's attention. But as much as anything, it's it's about space. Imagination needs certain things in our lives. It needs space. And at the moment, uh, you know, I, I spoke to a woman who I came to a talk. The very first talk I did about the book was with was with a load of people who are produce arts producers. So they run theatres, they run production companies. And I did a they do like a week retreat that I went and was one of the presenters at. And afterwards, I went for a walk with a woman who runs one of the main theatres in, in in the big city in the UK. She said. Everybody in my organisation, whether there's the guy who opens the curtains or the people in the senior management in the theatre or the production companies who come through the door, everybody is running on fumes. Everybody is exhausted and, and just trying to keep up with themselves and all the paperwork they've got to do. And, and we're the people who are supposedly in charge of the, not in charge of, but responsible for nurturing the imagination of this place. And we're all completely frazzled. You know, the imagination needs space. The imagination needs uh, uh, needs us not to feel overwhelmed and anxious. It's best done with other people. It's best done as a kind of shared activity. Uh, and, and it's best done in a context where we can manifest something with it. So it doesn't happen by accident. And the point of the book is I really wanted the book. You know, people often talk of the reviews I've seen in this book. They say, oh, it's so inspiring and it's all these great stories. And yes, and I hope that is something that it does. But at the same time, there's also a really serious point to it, which is, you know, in the, in the 1960s, Rachel Carson wrote a book called Silent Spring, which was uh, seen by many people as really the first environmental book. It was a book that really kick-started the environmental movement, where she said, unless we do something now, urgently, we're going to see a spring because of DDT and these chemicals that were around at the time. We're going to have a spring <coughs> where there's going to be no birds left. We will have a silent spring. And it was an incredibly powerful book. And I would like to think that this book is kind of a silent spring for the imagination. In that actually, we recognize in a society that if we don't, if people eat shit food, we see a rise in preventable illness and ill health in that population. If we have a really bad education system, we recognize that we, have, we produce a generation of young people who are unable to, to meet their potential. 
if we are seeing the, 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 the decline of the imagination, that's really, really important. We have to really say, stop and say, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. In the same way that every generation of parents wants their children to be more healthy than they are and live longer lives, we should be thinking we want our children to be more imaginative than we are, and that's not happening. You know, we're seeing this de de slow decline of the imagination, and unless we step in and say, no, 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 hang on, if we have an education system that in the last nine years has lost 20% of the arts teaching staff, we've seen a 35% decline in kids taking arts at subjects at GCSE level, there's the aim for over 90% of schools in this country to teach English baccalaureate by 2025, which includes no art subjects. All the art subjects become optional. If you go to a private school, private schools have amazing art facilities and theatre because they recognise they want to produce rounded people. If you go into the state sector, Michael Gove and people have just cut that out ruthlessly over the, over the years because they don't think it has any value. For me, because they think actually people need to leave and get jobs and earn money and so this STEM, science, technology, English and maths are the important things. For me, a life where you have not studied history, mm. <coughs> where you have no, it's really dangerous yeah. to produce a generation you of young people mistakes. with no understanding of history. You produce people who can't, don't read poetry, who never read novels, who can't write, who can't draw. That's, that's a poverty worse than any kind of uh, income bracket for me so so I think we know we need to recognize that imagination is like a muscle you know we all do it it's vital to us but it, it but it becomes as it becomes weaker and weaker also when a, when a population's imagination shrinks I think it leaves us much more susceptible to it to our imagination being taken over by demagogues and lunatics and one of the people I interviewed in a book Henry Giroux in America he uses this term uh, the Trump disimagination machine and he says when you have a government who actually tells you that actually no sorry you've got your understanding of history wrong and actually the slaves who came alternative to Africa alternative facts alternative facts the, the slaves who came to America came here like on a sort of holiday kind of a jolly kind of a thing and starts to rewrite your history for you then that's really, really dangerous. So dangerous. And, and if you only think of education in terms of jobs, I think that's really, really sad. And there are jobs in, in the arts industries. And yeah, if and they're 20%. only coming from private schools, we end up with the same We're people. We're really in danger. It's and actually, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there was a time when working class people for the first time to go to, could go to art college. Brian Ferry, John Lennon. Grayson Perry. Grayson Perry. Uh, you know, this great long list of amazing Vivian Westwood, all these people, you know, went through that kind of system. And actually now again, it's becoming, it's becoming the domain of the privileged. But at the same time, in the, in, in the economy of this country, 20% of the economy in this country is the creative industries, which is more than aviation, the car industry, oil and gas, and the life sciences put together is the creative sector. If that becomes the sole domain of people who've had a private education, we're really, really in trouble. And I love, um, go back to Transition Network as well, I love that, I just love the word transition because I think a lot of stuff around climate change is all like, oh, it's like slight one-upmanship if you're not doing everything perfectly. If you're not vegan, then why bother recycling? <laughs> and like transition yeah. is literally, it's that word. It's like in between two things. Yes. It's like, yeah, we are, we are where we are and we need to figure out how to get over there. Yeah. I love that thing you just said in the talk as well, trying to get, imagine... Use your imagination. Think about what life will be like if we could 
eradicate all the issues to do with climate change in in 2030 what would it be like yeah because there's something about i notice if if you if you get a load of people together and you say close your eyes and imagine you're in 2090 most people can't do 2090 because all the dystopias come in the way 2090 shit we're going to be under like we're going to be under 20 meters of sea level and there will there'll be like you know three breeding pairs of human beings left somewhere near aberdeen you know but actually but actually if you put it into 2030 and you say and i i do it where i get i did it I do it with small groups. I did it with 1,500 people in a hall in, in Brussels a few weeks ago. It was phenomenal. And you, you get people into pairs, shut their eyes, facing the other person, and you say, we're going to attempt the first act of mass time travel in this city. And uh, you say, uh, I, I say, and I'm sure you've always wondered what a time machine sounds like. And a time machine sounds like this. Mm, and you get everyone to go, mm, you have this, that's the sound of a time machine. So when we turn our time machine on, you're going to travel forward to 2030. And the years in between, the 11 years between now and then, have been a time of the most extraordinary social transformation. A time that in 2019 was completely unimaginable. But actually, we had, then we elected governments who declared 2030 climate targets. We had business came on board, finance came on board policy making came on board communities were given the resources and the tools they needed to be able to really accelerate this and that that 10 years was a time that was utterly extraordinary it was a time that the people who came afterwards talk about in great stories and sing great songs about and uh, and you're going to we're going to turn on the time machine and we're going to travel forward and then you ever get the whole hall to go mm, <laughs> and then it just slowly fades out and you just let them you just get them to sit there with their eyes closed, imagining that they're in that place. And I say to imagine it with all your senses. What does it smell like? What does it sound like? What can you hear? And you just leave them there for a couple of minutes. And then you say, okay, and keeping your eyes closed, just lean into your partner and just share some of what you're seeing or what you're feeling, you know. And uh, there's often people are in tears or, you know, like good tears, you know. It's like really they've never allowed themselves to do it, you know. And then I go round and just say, would anybody like to share any reflections? What did you see? The first thing is always birdsong. The birdsong was really loud. And the one woman said to me once, you know, I've realised I've worked as a climate change campaigner for 20 years and I've never done this. So I've been working for something that I've not been able to imagine. No. And she said, she said this, is, this, this is, will now be a daily practice for me. This, is, this kind of, a, it helps people to create a North Star ahead of them that they can then... Uh, they can then move towards and then you can do really nice exercises then you build off that in terms of getting people to maybe draw that or there's an ex there's an exercise i read a transition group did in portugal recently where that where the, where they said what new words would you need what what things did you see that they're under we have no words for at the moment can you think of a new word that would capture so they start to build a kind of a new vocabulary for what they would need it's and really instead lovely instead of like it? plastic waste and plastic climate waste. emergency and all the new yeah. words that we're adding at the moment yeah, so exactly. when you do that then what does your 2030 look like does it look like transition towns are what every town is like is that what your 2030 for me, looks for like me, it, for me it uh, there's actually a little video that people can look up if you go on my blog robhopkins.net there's a video i made as part of the promotion for the book where which is me walking through a day in the future which is basically me taking a load of photos of really cool places i've been to like a, a straw bale apartment block i stayed in, in 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 switzerland and a place that was an old supermarket that'd be turned into a food court and so walking through it and going as if this is now completely normal everywhere you know it's really good fun I think it would. I think that the thing that I always love to play around with in my head is we give in our cities an enormous amount of land over to cars. In LA, two thirds of LA is dedicated to cars, and the public transport is rubbish. And having the public been there. transport is rubbish, and actually, 
Once we start to take the cars out of our cities, which is happening already in Paris, the amount of cars, because of the work of the mayor, the, the, the mayor at the moment has led to a steady reduction in the amount of cars. There are now a whole load of underground car parks nobody uses anymore. They don't need them. So they did a competition two years ago to say, what else could we do in these car parks? So they're now full of underground mushroom farms and, and hydroponic projects and growing salads under lights and all sorts of, you know, actually when you take the cars out, there's a huge amount of space. So then you think, well, what would, what would the street be like if there were no cars? What would happen here? It could be full of food being grown. It could be full of trees. It could be uh, like the High Line in New York, you know, which is like a sort of gardens up in the sky. It could be full of children playing and birdsong and biodiversity. And, and it could just be so utterly experientially different from where we are now it's why I think a big part of what we need to do is the work of the imagination because if you can help people to imagine what the street their high street would look like if there were no cars and it's one of the things Extinction Rebellion are doing beautifully you know Waterloo Bridge we're going to block Waterloo Bridge for a week and we're going to plant trees down the middle and we're going to have a library and a yoga studio and we're going to give out free food to everybody and it's like a festival on a bridge and you think yeah actually and people can walk down there and go, it could be like this every day. I could cycle across this bridge through trees and not through traffic. And the beautiful thing for me is actually when I come to imagine what that future would be like, I'm kind of assembling things that already exist that I've seen all over the world. So for me, it's the, it's the, the food system they're building in Liège and the urban gardens I saw in Berlin and the community energy you see in Freiburg and... Uh, um, the, the, the food market, the Transition Crystal Palace started, but all of that everywhere. William, is it William Gibson, the, the science fiction writer, used to say, uh, the, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. So for me, for me, when I try and imagine 2030, I'm assembling all of those things, all joined up, all completely commonplace and every day. And uh, I just hope I live to see it. Amazing. I will link to that video you mentioned, obviously Transition Great. Network and your brilliant book. But we always ask guests two important questions. We're called the age of plastic because we think we're living in it. It's a great material. We're just using it in the wrong way. Is there a plastic item in your life you feel like you could not live without? Uh, yes. The plastic item that I can't live without is vinyl records. That's and my I, one I, too. And I still <laughs> buy new vinyl records. And I kind of figure... And recently I saw that there was a, for, uh, the, I can't remember, for Extinction Rebellion, they'd made a, they, they'd made a record printed on vinyl, uh, which was made from plastic taken out of the sea off the coast of Cornwall. And I'm thinking... Ocean vinyl? Yeah. And wow. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, go. But at the moment I feel like it's oil taken out of the ground and then I'm kind of locking up. I sort of look at my record collection as a kind of carbon sequestration project. <laughs> Nice. I like that. That's what I'm going to call it now. Yeah, That's exactly. It's possibly complete nonsense, but it works for me. <laughs> um, lovely. And Robert, just one final question. Your environmental hero, as I'm sure you're probably lots of other people's. Uh, my environmental hero. Can I have two? Everyone always has more than one. <laughs> well, actually, in, in the back of the book, I have a huge misery. long list of people. I can't wait so, to read it. It's in my so, uh, so I would say Greta Thunberg, yeah. who, who makes me cry every time I see, in fact, I start going now, even just talking about her. She, a teenage uh, girl teenage, with Asperger's syndrome, she, what who, she's managed to achieve. Who just speaks truth to power in mm. a way that, who just says, so are you reading different science to me? Because I'm reading this science and it says this. 
Am I getting? I'm only 16. What do I know? But am I missing something? Mm. Just Which awesome. Which was in front of the? Um, I'm not sure if it's the, the UN. Uh, in America, and the guy said, "Well, China's not doing as much as America. Why should we bother?" And she's like, "Well, I'm coming from a small country, and I can tell you, your own arguments are going to be used against you." So yes. I was just like, "Oh, that's that's so beautiful, <laughs> Chef Kiss." Yes, I love Greta Thunberg. So Greta Thunberg. Uh, I would say David Holmgren, who is one of the co-founders of Permaculture and who is a man who totally lives his, walks his talk in a way that I just love. He's one of the kindest, most brilliant, smartest men. And his book, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, oh, wow. was really the book that, that kind of kick-started transition for me. And uh, Aldo Leopold, who is the guy who wrote a Sand County Almanac. He wrote an essay called The Land Ethic which said that there should be a, we should have ethics around how we use land, which now is a pretty standard idea, but when he wrote it in like 1910 or something, uh, was and all the school strikers, because mm. the school strikes make me cry whenever I go on the school strikes. <laughs> I love how we've laughed a lot, but talked a lot about things that make you cry on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big softie, really. <laughs> it doesn't take much. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, it's been I a really delight, appreciate really. your time. Thank you for sitting out in the cold. A pleasure. <laughs> to me on the Age of Plastic <laughs> podcast. And good luck with the book. Thank you very much. Rob Hopkins there, a man who fizzes with positivity, just maybe not for the band KLF. And speaking to him and reading his brilliant book, From What Is to What If, was such a tonic, I can't tell you. And the book is full of more examples, like the ones Rob shared, not of distant utopias, but of areas globally making the changes that their communities need. So please do check out the book. Maybe don't buy it from that retailer with the terrible ethical practices named after a rainforest, if that's possible for you. I'll put some links to the book, Transition Networks, Rob's blog, and the film Demain, which is tomorrow in French. You're welcome. Uh, in the show's notes, I'm basically bilingual. Um, your eco-life hack for today, then, is shamelessly ripped from Rob's book. Um, take a leaf out of Rob's book and... Um, Get out into nature without your phone. It's as simple as that. Not even with this podcast. I've actually taken a little tip from Rob's book as well and tried switching my phone to black and white. It's a lot less addictive, I tell you. Give your imagination some space and ask yourself some what-if questions. You know your community, like Rob said, so flip the pyramid and imagine 2030. Finally, I just want to say a big thank you to Pebble Magazine for helping set up the interview. Please follow them and check out their online sustainable magazine and community if you haven't already. I will see you next time when I'll give you a sustainable excuse to say, I'm sorry, I can't go out. I'm staying in to wash my hair. I'll be speaking to Sue Campbell, who did a total career pivot to found a vegan, plastic-free, cruelty-free hair brand, Kind2. They do solid shampoo and conditioner bars. They're reinvented, though, for the 21st century with formulas that have no soap, sulfate, silicones or parabens. So I'll see you next time on the Age of Plastic podcast. And remember, I suck and I love to fail. <laughs>